On this week's episode of Where We Are, we'll talk about men. Do we need them? Mm-hmm. We'll find out. Also, our rankings first of Republican presidential candidates, then, and finally, pasta shapes. You're listening to Where We Are. You are listening to Where We Are. We are the Where's. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. Melissa, we're in August. We're uh, closer to Buffalo Bills football. We are. We were just discussing that preseason starts so soon. Yeah, preseason starts soon. Uh, It is. We had like, well, so I was in San Francisco last week, and it was it was like it was like 65, 70. It was beautiful. I could have. I mean. But then we had a couple of nice days that were reprieves from the heat here, but now it's back to like August. I'm ready for fall, Melissa. I am not. You don't like fall. I don't. It's fine. Still frustrates me that that you, but I I feel like you like fall more since we've had kids. Sure. Yes. You like apple cider donuts? I do. It's my number one thing. You like. I like buying dressing costumes the kids up for like my pumpkins. Yep. Yep. Uh, Searsha loves Halloween more than pretty much anything, so her excitement gets me excited. Yeah. 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 So I am ready to move through the summer, but uh, we had a milestone today. We did. Searsha got her first haircut. She was all nervous, but she was completely brave. She got her nails painted. She got a balloon, a sucker, a certificate. Uh, she was loving life. The kid loving was loaded. Life. The kid was loaded. She, I'm like, this is a whole, uh, whole experience. I did feel like I felt like my child was being drafted into like, uh, like her nails were getting done. I, I didn't realize that was a part of the whole... I mean, I had no idea. I didn't realize that was... Why are her nails getting done? Uh, but she seemed to like it, so... <sighs> Live to fight another day. <laughs> Live to fight another day. Uh, but yeah, no, she was she was good. Alaria, meanwhile, had a great time checking out all the various... You know, this was like one of those kids shops uh the the uh one of the hairdressers asked Sirsha what what's uh, where she wanted to sit and, and what color or like whatever and Sirsha's like the pink chair and the hairdresser was like well you won't be able to watch the tv there I was like good it's it's the hairdresser why does she need to watch the tv she won't and plus, I'm like, you don't know my daughter. She, If the TV is on, you will not get her to put her head to the side, down. She will be in, like, comatose land. Um, and so I was glad that we got her in a chair without the TV. Alaria was, they had, like, a fighter jet thing she could sit in. They had a frozen car. And so, thankfully, the place wasn't too busy because Alaria just kept kept on going from one one chair to another. But... It was quite a cultural experience. <laughs> I know. It was. It was fun. She enjoyed it. She did. She did. Uh, and then uh, what else did we want to Did we want to talk about? There was something else. There was. What was it? Oh, oh, the book. 
Your book. The book. <laughs> the book. See, it's done. So now it's so far from my mind, I can't even like... I know. It's been just weeks of revisions for you. So Michael got through the final two chapters today. Final, final revisions. It goes for what? Typeface setting, whatever that process is called. Yeah, next. exactly. Um, and so Michael... Just a few hours ago, uh, I pointed out something in the final chapter, and he went and wrote. It took him like, I don't know, an hour to write it, a couple of new paragraphs, and everybody. So he went downstairs to take care of the kids, you know, feed them dinner, that kind of thing. And I'm upstairs going through this paragraph, like yelling down at him, going, what? Because one line was just like a zinger and a half, a triple zinger. I don't even know. And then the paragraph that comes right after it, it punched me in the face. It made me cry because it, it was just a combination of a distillation of a concept so beautifully written, but beautifully written, not just like prose wise, but in a way that I think will just slap you in the face. The end, the final chapter of this book is so good, but every single chapter is extremely good. You just written a really good book, and I cannot wait for people to read what I have read like 15 times because it's gotten better and better each time, and it's now at like the pinnacle. I think it's at like the zenith of where it needs to be. I I do feel like if I worked on it anymore, I'd be making it worse. Diminishing returns. Yes. yes. Um, um, no, we are at the zenith, the pinnacle, the height, <laughs> the whatever. Uh, it was fun this week for the first time. So... I've shared portions of the manuscript with two or three people other than you. Just a couple other people have seen the full manuscript. So I, I like, it hasn't gone out for endorsements yet. Um, I don't have much feedback. We did get to talk to folks at our, uh, folks at my publishers mm -hmm. this week. And so that was really fun to get like, um, you know, when you're when you're writing a book, it's such like an isolating process. The few people you're able to bring in, you just that's freighted with a whole lot of like expectations. So I'm I'm glad I'm finally getting to the the the, the sharing of the book. And uh, yeah, I feel great about it. Can't wait to tell y'all more uh, more about it. And that will be will be coming. Pretty soon, we're about five and a half months away from the book coming out, and so maybe a month, six weeks, and I'll start feeling antsy enough to uh, to to start talking more about about the uh, what's actually in the book. But yeah, it was fun to get that wrapped up and just not have that looming over. When I'm working on writing, I I can't have quiet space in my head <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. like if I get if I get like an opportunity where I don't have to be doing something else you're just thinking about the book um and so that should uh, that issue should be alleviated uh Melissa we have a fun episode for folks uh this week we are gonna do our first rankings episode yes uh figured I, I think maybe we'll change it up, but right now I kind of like the first Sunday of the, you know, the first episode of, of each month. Um, that seems to be like pretty good timing. Um, 
Uh, and, and so we'll start in August. We'll do a rankings for August, and then we'll do like a Labor Day weekend ranking after, after, uh, we, get, after we get a debate, which will be uh, the debate's on August 23rd, I think. Yep, and then the second debate is September 27th, so right after that you'll get another post yeah. debate ranking. Yeah, uh, and then we're going to rank uh, pasta shapes. Yeah, that's which I is prepared also for important. that for like an hour. Uh, but first, we want to talk. We've been wanting to talk about this for for uh, a few weeks now. But other topics have sort of come up, and we want to talk about not for too long. I don't think, but want to want to revisit uh, Christine. And I say revisit because I'm sure you all read it. Christine Emba's essay for the Washington Post. Christine Emba, of course, previous guest of the pod, friend of the pod, pal of the pod. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Christine Emba wrote an essay for the Washington Post last month, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness, taking on the masculinity debate. Um, I like to think of this essay as a precursor to the, uh, the Barbie discourse. I think uh, Christine really tilled the ground for for that, uh, and so Greta Gerwig should be thanking her. Um, but yeah, you know, the the essay has a lot to it. I really like where Christine starts, which is uh, I started noticing it a few years ago. Men, especially young men, were getting weird, um, and she goes through a mix of like hard data, um, and also uh, uh, interviews uh, with experts and also kind of like interviews on the street with uh, with both men and women. Uh, she talks about the pu- public policy landscape. She talks about sort of the cultural and political difficulties with even having this conversation. Uh, Melissa, I have some thoughts, but wondering wondering what you thought of the essay and like like where you zero in and i do think that's part of the reaction to this which is christine covers so much territory mm-hmm. and she's yeah. so even-handed and not in like a an evasive way i don't think but sh- just she 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 lets various perspectives sort of have their say in the essay and so we've just seen people dialing in in different areas and on different sort of uh, topics that are covered. Well, where where did you focus? Yeah, so I like that she has a follow-up, and this was just this past day. She has a follow-up at um, a Substack, Wisdom of Crowds, um, with a new essay. It, it's shorter than this, though, this, you know, this first entry into WAPO. And the title of that one is The Ideal Man Exists. And what she does is she contends with some of the reactions that she's gotten um, specifically from writers on on this um, whole topic. And she also tells us that there will be another follow-up to this Washington Post piece where she had a lot of men and other people writing in saying, like, this is what I think is the ideal man. And so before she gets to, like, revealing, you know, what readers they've given to her, she reacts to, so, to some um, critic, to some people who are supportive or want to, like, um, work on her ideas further. Again, like you're saying, Michael, focusing in on certain areas of her Washington Post essay that they found to be the most intriguing, troubling, whatever. 
And so that's the essay, The Ideal Man Exists, over at Wisdom of Crowds. And there is a couple different topics that she hits on that I think are deeply important. And the one, the one thing is, is around norms and ideals. Should there actually be set norms and ideals? Should we be working on that? Because, you know, she contends that there's quite a few people who say that that can't exist or that's not the right way, that's not the right way to be thinking about this. Um, but she states in this particular piece that if we do have norms or ideals that we would like to sort of work on, discuss, they need to be thick. They need to be thick norms, thick ideals in order to withstand the scrutiny and the everyday wear and I, what I would call the everyday wear and tear of life. That a lot of this discourse, when we talk about, you know, if we go through every, you know, per, every man, every woman, whatever idea of what a man is or what masculinity is, a lot of it's like really paper thin. And that's why a lot of these arguments aren't holding up or feel like they're crossing wires. Um, and she argues that there needs to be like a thickness to the discourse. And I think that's like a really, I think that's hitting something really on the head. Um, the other, uh, one other really quick point that we could discuss, but the third point I want to I personally, this is where like I, my brain went when I was reading, when I've been reading all these follow-ups reading the original article. But the second thing I want to say is that not just the ideals or the values or the norms around what is masculinity and what makes a man are the channels. Like the channels are an important conversation here. Um, meaning like how we actually discuss these things and where these norms and ideals are not just defined, but where they are perpetuated and where they take place. I think that we forget that while we sit and contemplate what is a man, what makes a quote unquote good man, we kind of forget that life is actually coming at us. Like it doesn't stop while we try to work through these issues. And so like social media, pop culture writ large, porn, like, uh, conversations around the table, sports, uh, you know, various forms of art, um, marriage, singleness, like all these things and all these channels and all the ways that we live these things out, like all, I think are huge facets here that blow up the conversation to make it even larger. So, you know, I just want to put that out there, but I feel like that's too a bit too much for us to focus on here. My main thing that I've been contending with and um, she mentions in this latest piece in Wisdom Crowd that Ed Yong kind of said some, says something like this, like what I've been thinking about and um, Osita, um, you know, one of our dear friends yeah. who writes at the New Republic is also kind of contending with. And this is where I was going. Are masculine and feminine really that opposite? Now, I don't say that in like a provocative sense or like a postmodern sense. Um, I don't say that to make us like amorphous blobs. Um, but there's something that I've always sensed from, especially if I'm coming at this as a Christian, coming at this with scripture, coming at this with some of like the theological ideas like I've heard bounced around. Um, I felt like there was a time in which actually we discussed a lot of these things. It was premarital counseling about marriage, yeah, about sure. your role and my role. My role as a woman, your role as a man. Um, and we, like we, as everybody does, like we studied Ephesians quite hard and some other bits of scripture. <laughs> <laughs> um, we went hard on Ephesians, man. No, yeah. but we, yeah, yeah, we yeah. looked at it a lot. And we, yeah, yeah. You and I had a lot of dinner yeah, yeah, table yeah. discussions, we a did. lot of, you know, public transportation discussions, um, <laughs> you yeah, know, riding yeah. the subway to, yeah, yeah. to go to school. Um, you know, we looked at Jesus' teachings. We looked at, you know, um, the books that Paul wrote, um, quite rigor rigorously and, 
I always felt like male and female are more integrated or more symbiotic than not. Um, but I think that at the center of it, like the main corrupting factor that distorts that integration or that symbiosis um, is power. And I know that we talk about power a lot. And I mean, the whole, it's, it's a tale as old as time. Um, there are a lot of overwrought conversations on the patriarchy, on the historical elevation of men's power over women. And, you know, I don't want to get into that, but what distorts, I think, like, a lot of like the things that we know as Christians from scripture, I think have been distorted by like these various postmodern, postmodern senses and postmodern culture around power and like these ideas that the patriarchy is toxic and masculinity is mostly toxic. And so you have all this conversation. So like, of course, men feel lost. They feel like they're in the wilderness and then femininity and masculinity like feel further apart from one another and further unmoored from like anything like any sort of center um and I don't say all of that to like go back to like any kind of pre postmodern like takes on this I kind I just want to that's where I get stuck on femininity and masculinity and how far apart are they when we're actually talking about where do we actually start with like what are the ideals or what makes a man what are the norms and ideals that we feel like are preferred for men to not feel so lost or feel like they're in the wilderness. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to that point, I mean, it does bring to mind, um, not that, you know, uh, right, thinking about gender, think about thinking about men and women, it doesn't and has never required a college degree. I don't, like, it's thinking about sort of these roles is not uh, a new thing. I do think that part of the issue here, which I'm not even like saying it's a problem overall, or at least I'm not like prepared to say that, uh, but the fact that we're so educated now, uh, that, that such a high percentage of the population has gone to college mm -hmm. and you know, like taking a gender course mm -hmm. in their undergrad to hit their 120 credits or whatever, and and now has this sort of like vague uh, uh, set of terms and ideas uh, with which they carry with them in their lives and their, their interactions. Like, I do think there's a level at which sort of the deconstruction of masculinity, femininity, um, uh, is, is unmooring. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, like a conversation about roles, thinking about roles, that's not new. Like, uh, um, the, the Victorian age was not uh, uh, no. was not immune to yeah. uh, uh, sort of uh, overwrought thinking on these things, but but I do think it's an interesting factor here to think about um, the, the the sort of academic and in some cases you know when you're taking a the, the sort of pseudo academic nature of some of these conversations 
that then are detached from how people often detach from how people actually live their lives. Mm -hmm. That's that's why I was saying that so all that, these conversations, life is still coming at us as yes. we discuss these things in whatever tower we're sitting in. If it's the ivory tower, the elite tower, whatever you want to call so it. So Christine has talked about this. I can't remember if it's in this essay or if it's in Rethinking Sex, her book. Mm, okay. But, but this idea that there's like this rhetoric and this pop the, the, this sort of um, online, very like online female perspective about what makes uh, for a good uh, man or mm -hmm. what, what, what they sort of the ideal man from like an online th think piece sort of uh, perspective, but that that often doesn't match up at all with um, with how actual relationships are played out and what, mm -hmm. what women say they want in their significant other or in someone, um, you know, that, that they're friends with. I think, I think that's a sort of unmooring thing that there, that we're, we're, we're sort of, we're living with two ideals, sort of this, what I think I should think ideal and then mm -hmm. like what I'm drawn to, like what I, mm -hmm. what I feel. And then obviously on the, on the, on the male side of that to sort of sift through <laughs> the, the various sort of mm -hmm. the, the messages you're receiving and then also how things work out in real life. I think that's, uh, I think that's an issue. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts there. I just wanted to point out one more thing in the article, um, which is this discussion Christine has about how difficult it is to talk about these issues politically in oh, ways yeah. that have cultural implications. She talks about um, on sort of the political side of things, a sort of hesitancy to invoke men, masculinity, um, specifically in a way that is not carried over for uh, women in this in the same way. There are women's outreach directors on political campaigns. There are staffers who, on both the policy and the outreach side, who are uh, sort of. Who, who who have mandates directly related uh, to women? Christine points out that there is not uh, typically hasn't been analog for that for men. And of course, again, as Christine talks about, there are all kinds of historical and social reasons for that. But as uh, as Christine notes, men seem to be facing some particularized challenges uh, now that. Uh, that require particularized attention. I think that's right. And the, f but the fact that it's right and needed, if it comes at a political cost, um, those, those steps won't be taken. And, uh, and, and so, so that's something our politics is going to have to sift out. What I'm worried about is like how bad does it have to get for there to be a sort of uh, a deciding mass, a, a, a sort of turning point where uh, 
okay, sort of addressing uh, the kinds of problems that Christine talks about in the piece, like that is okay. She does talk about President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative, which right on one side of the ledger, that was a, a male-specific mm-hmm. um, male initiative. On the other side of the ledger, as Christine lays out, he got criticized by that. Uh, He got criticized for that um, from uh, from allies. Like people were very upset. There had to there there, and I was working in the White House at the time. There, there, like machinery of government had to be moved to respond to the kinds of criticism uh, that was received for initiative that wasn't just focus on uh, on males, but primarily on boys and primarily on boys of color. And there was <laughs> there was still uh, there was still a, a pretty significant pushback. Uh, there was there was concern about well what kind of precedent is set there? Aren't aren't girls struggling and these these kinds of uh, these sort of power struggles? Um, so, so yeah, so those are, those are my thoughts. Yeah, so there was just one last thing that I wanted to say, and it's relating to not this last point you made, but the point before that. There's a certain point in the Washington Post article, r- r- sort of near the end, where Christine says, and quote, if the right has overcorrected to an old-fashioned and somewhat hostile vision of masculinity, many progressives have ignored the opportunity to sell men on a better vision of what they can be, end quote. And there is, there is something here where... You know, a, a lot of people would argue, especially on the left, that like, well, everything's already built for men. You're already benefiting. The focus, you know, shouldn't be on you at all. You know, you're just going to have to figure this out on your own kind of thing while we continue to, you know, focus on women, all the things that come with, you know, all the sort of particular things that they're sort of preoccupied with on gender right now. And the thing is, is that um, that vision of men is like deeply important. Like the structures and everything are, yeah, sure. The structures of basically anything can be built around men, but you're still not helping men to figure out who they are. Like the structure and the person or the personhood, like are two separate things. And I, and I think that that's often forgotten when you get somebody coming back at you saying like, why are, you know, this isn't even one of the most important conversations that we're having on gender. Men already benefit from the entire system you know, let's focus over here. And it's kind of like, no, men themselves, like figuring out who they are, who they're meant to be, that those kinds of questions are actually deeply important and can be separate from like the fact that, yes, you know, power, the whole, again, the whole power conversation just corrupts some of the deep social cohesion, deep personhood, humanity type conversations that we're actually trying to have here. Yeah, it's... uh. I, I think Christine's main, you know, I think the the point that she made that I thought resonated most in political spaces was like there's a vacuum here, and if it's not filled with like good stuff, it will and is be uh, it it will and is being filled by really bad stuff. Um, and so like, I think that there, um, uh, there, uh, no, I think what I'm concerned about will, will come from that. And this goes to your point about like 
the response has to has to has to have depth to it, which is um, like a response that that isn't motivated. Uh, that is more of a reaction to well, we don't want uh, we don't want sort of uh, we don't want Jordan Peterson to like control this conversation, mm-hmm. uh, and so we like something has to be offered. Uh, if that's the motivation, it's probably going to be some pretty thin, thin yes. gruel. <laughs> um, and so uh, uh, people need to. People need to enter into this conversation actually caring for men, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and not as some sort of like second or third degree removed, you know, for some, for some uh, uh, second or third degree removed, you know, purpose or reason or calculation. Yeah, agreed. All right, let's... Uh, let's move on to the ranking. Do you, want, do you want to take a break? Oh, yeah, we can. Yeah, let's take a break. And we'll come back with our rankings. You're listening to Where We Are. We're back. You're listening to Where We Are. We are the Wares. And we're about to do our first ever ranking of the 2024 Republican presidential candidates. There we are, theme music and everything. Uh, this is how uh, we'll do this. Uh, we uh, are going to go with the top nine candidates. So And so uh, as long as there are at least nine candidates in the race, we'll have a top nine. Uh, and we're going to try and not... Obviously, there's a lot that could be said about these candidates. We'll talk about the candidates outside of the ranking uh, episode and segment of the episode, but we're going to try and not really belabor um, going through the ranking. But so let's start. We'll start from the uh, uh, start from the bottom. Uh, number nine, Governor Asa Hutchinson, which is yeah. a shame because he seems like a nice guy. For sure. Seems like a, Go a classy classy guy, uh, but I just don't see him gaining much traction in this year, in this field. Uh, the fact that, you know, he, he's, not, he's not in office currently. No. Nope. Uh, the fact that, you know, you, you can't really, uh, you know, name me one thing that Governor Hutchinson did while in office, you know, mm-hmm. like, like it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, and so it'll be hard for him to get oxygen, I think, in, uh, in a field like, like this. Number eight. So do you disagree on, on, no, uh, yeah, no, that's pretty. Uh, number eight, Chris Christie. Yeah, Chris Christie, former New Jersey governor. Yeah. Now very outspoken critic of Donald Trump. Yeah, I could totally see him. Like, I don't think he's stuck at eight. No, so he is. He's the one in this list as the current. Once we get through the ranking, this will make sense. But he is the one who I could see jumping way up, having a peak moment. Now, obviously, that peak really depends. Will actually really depend on when it hits for him. But 
I see him gaining traction very, very easily compared to quite a few people on like the fifth, sixth, seventh, and well, Hutchinson and ninth. Yeah, I mean, because he, he definitely, right, so people are down on Christie because A, he hasn't been in office for a long time. B, he kind of has, in some ways, has Pence's problem in that uh, he was he was a significant Trump backer without even really, you know, at least Haley got an appointment out of it uh, after she made clear that she didn't really, you know, didn't really want Trump to be the nominee. But but for for Christie, you know, he was kind of he was uh, it wasn't nece- necessarily public service that was <laughs> like motivating his support, at least not like a role of public service. So, um, but. He's someone who can gain a, a lot of traction. He's done this before. He's, he's done run this before. before. Um, he's very good in town hall type situations. He's he's good in interview type situations. He he's good with retail yes. politics. So he has yes. he checks a ton of boxes he in terms of appealing. Yeah. In terms of appealing to people and doing like if people like the the straight talking part of Donald Trump, they will get that out of Chris Christie. Yeah, that's interesting, Melissa. Um, Number seven, uh, I have Vivek Ramaswamy, and some people have him higher. They do because and some of his polling is his national fairly. polling is is good. Has him at third. Yeah. Now the 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 knock on that is okay, but you look at the actual you look at the early primary states, and he's polling well under that. Mm-hmm. So usually, candidates have the other, the, the opposite problem. You know, they're spending their time in these early states, but but nationally, no one knows of them. Vivek, uh, because he spent so much money digital advertising and doing a lot of sort of national interviews, he has higher national ID, uh, but it doesn't seem to be gaining much traction. You know, I, I think it's going to be a challenge in some of these early uh, early states for. Uh, folks that take him seriously. Um, I also think, you know, if something had happened to DeSantis, Vivek might might pick up some of DeSantis's sort of anti woke sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, while DeSantis is 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 there, I think that lane is filled by like someone who's, you know, a governor and and that kind of thing. So. He is a compelling guy. He's he's willing to go anywhere. He's willing to talk to anyone. Yep, one of those candidates. He's gonna have. Do you know? Do you know how I view him, Melissa? How? I view him as the Andrew Yang. Oh, I was gonna the say Andrew he's Yang. The of willing this. to talk to anyone. Yeah, oh yeah. And and very committed core mm-hmm. of followers yep. who I think will spend a lot of time and energy trying to explain to other people. Why no, you just so need compelling. to give them a chance. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about Vivek is that he his campaign so far has been marked by a lot of speeches and talks and interviews um, focusing on faith and questions of faith and approach and um, using a lot of like religious right type language. And he himself is Hindu. And we're and I actually there was an article in the Washington Post just a couple of days ago about how those two things are now coming to a head when it comes to the evangelical vote. A lot of evangelicals are like, well, he's a Hindu. He can't possibly like understand us, that type of like viewpoint. 
And so it'll be interesting to see if he continues on. He's going to make the first debate. I yep. think even by the standards of the September 27th debate, I think he's going to make that one. So he's going to continue to stay in the game, kind of like Andrew Yang did. Right. And so yes. the, the conversation around faith and politics, how he approaches it, and how people view him as somebody who is um, a Hindu will be fascinating to watch. Yeah. That, that's one of the reasons why I watch him is just from the religion faith angle. Yeah. Really good points. Um, number six, Doug Burgum. Yeah. Governor North Dakota. Yep. Um, Giving away $20 gift cards. Yeah. So he, he'll be on the debate yes, stage. Yes, he will because of that strategy. I'll tell you, like in my, some of my recent travels, uh, there are well-connected folks who really like him. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, he is someone who had, has money to put into yep. his race. Just like Ramaswamy, like he's investing a lot of his own money into the race. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how he, if he has a moment in this first debate. Mm-hmm. Like I'm watching him. I've been surprised to see how, well, he's polling in New Hampshire. Um, and he's someone who could gain traction at some point. I mean, again, if DeSantis's campaign can't regain ground, then that sort of, that, that opens up quite a bit. And Doug Burgum could, um, we'll see if he has a real, what his purpose is in running uh, whether that's able to shine through uh, during during uh, mm-hmm. during this first debate. Yeah. Number five. Mike Pence. Mike Pence. Uh, in some ways, I, I think Mike Pence is the candidate that you could place in the widest range yes. in the ranking. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that is how much you... A sort of weight you put to name ID and the fact mm-hmm. that so many Republican voters know him, how much weight you put in sort of the years and years of relationship building he did, not just as VP, but before. Um, uh, but based on like the sample size of this campaign, things don't seem to be going so well for him. He's had some really rough events. Um, uh, uh, like re- Republican conservative gatherings that he's getting booed at or just getting sort of muted responses to. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I kind of been, we've talked a lot about Mike Pence uh, on, on this podcast. I'd kind of in the back of my mind, I kind of assumed that they had a strategy and they had a way through all of this stuff that I just wasn't seeing. So far, it doesn't seem doesn't seem to be the case. No, because it even seems like they were caught off guard by by the RNC's rules for making this first debate stage. Oh, you know, very good point. He, yeah, it's yeah. not clear that that he'll make the His debate. His campaign stage. is saying that this coming week he should finally qualify. But the narrative is already out there. The news headlines are already out there that is that he hasn't made it yet. And they keep on saying, you know, well, he didn't start the campaign until June. And my question is, well, why did you start the campaign in June? 
And a part of me is like, they didn't quite understand that these types of strict rules would be coming down from the RNC and creating this kind of like um, just weakness for him. Yes. But again, let's cut out the debates, cut out the RNC, whatever That's they're doing. Such a let's good cut point, that Marissa. out. Why did the Pence campaign start in June? Why did they wait so long? Well, no, matter, no matter how this campaign goes, unless he becomes the nominee, I will always ask, why did he start? Well, so late? one reason is, remember, they uh, he announced right after he was cleared uh, with the, with with the, the documents. Yeah, with the documents. The, um, classified documents? Yeah, exactly. I still don't get it, though. I don't well, think that's a good excuse. No. Just for somebody who's wanted to be president his whole life, I, I don't understand. Well, yeah, but if you're running... If you're running to be, like, continue the Trump administration only with an upstanding guy, you don't want, like, imagine if... There should have been some other kind of messaging to rely on, though. Like, he has such a career. Like, he's been wanted to be president his whole life. Like, our interview with Adam Wren said a few weeks ago, like, there's there's more to him than that, you would think, but maybe there's not. Well, well I just think if you announce, and three days into your announcement... Uh, like a subpoena comes down or an indictment sort of comes down that you know you're you're cut off before you I will never I will yeah. never not contend that Mike Pence should have announced immediately after the midterms when Trump <laughs> was really down so Fair. there we go yeah uh number four and and here's where it gets interesting uh, uh it does so number four I have Nikki Haley yeah um I can see it I think she's a real political talent uh, I, I, I really, I could have put Nikki Haley sixth. Um, mm -hmm. the, I, I have her, this is like the highest I would put, I would put Haley at this point. And I think we've talked on the show in the past. The reason why I'm down on Nikki Haley is because, uh, it's not clear to me that she can best Tim Scott. And if she can't best Tim Scott, she will. I'm, uh, it is highly unlikely that she will stay in the race long enough to lose in her own home state. And so for me, it's like, mm -hmm. that might as well be its own ranking. Haley and Scott and whoever's oh, number one. Separate ranking. I'll come up with new music. Yeah. <laughs> and whoever's number one or whoever's number two there, they might as well be ninth on this list. Yeah, like they might exactly. as well be Completely Asa Hutchinson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, but I do think she's a real talent. I do think if something happens um, to, to, to uh, not something bad, but if, if Scott's campaign falters, uh, and, and Haley has a has a straight shot to South Carolina, then like any you know, a lot is possible for her. I I do think she's she's nominee material. Like she, mm -hmm. like like she is uh, worthy as a political talent of being the nominee for the Republican Party. I just think she has a rough rough road uh, mm -hmm. in this in this in this uh, in this process. Any I need thoughts? to see her at the debate if she has a moment. Yeah. And she's very capable of it. She I mean, she is. she is. She can deliver some zingers in terms of getting catching people's eyes. Oh, a hundred percent. Number three. <laughs> DeSantis. Yeah, I'm not surprised by this. When I saw your list, uh, like eighty percent of me agrees with this. Twenty percent of me just doesn't. Yeah, sure. That he should be number two. Yep. Still 
um, because people are still treating him as a very downtrodden, wounded number two. Yeah. But I think because of that, I know Scott has been rising over the last like 10 days, and you and I have been predicting this for a while that he, of all of these, com- out of the DeSantis Trump conversation, as soon as he launched that exploratory committee, you and I said we need to watch him the most out of all of these folks. Yes. Yeah. So have, I have Scott two, DeSantis three. It is projecting out a bit mm-hmm. from where we are. The debate could reset, could reset sort of DeSantis' status as as the clear number two. But remember what we've talked about. He's cut his campaign staff. Uh, yeah. the DeSan- so so the DeSantis campaign uh, is, uh, I think, a third of what it was. Yeah. Um, he his numbers are plummeting. Now, he still is, like in a national poll, he's still the clear number two in national polling. But I'm just projecting out from the trends. I haven't been inspired at all by what the DeSantis campaign has done since the sort of reset to make me think, oh, like they have a real strategy. Now, it is a long campaign. These are just rankings. These are sort of like snapshots in time. But if I had to project out here from... Uh, if I had to project out to, you know, uh, uh, the the Republican convention from here, yeah, I, I'd say Scott has a better chance of being the nominee based on what we know now than than DeSantis. Uh, and of course, well, anything to say, anything yeah, else to say either like on Scott or it, DeSantis? It just seems like in real time we're seeing the DeSantis team, especially with the third cut down scrambling to try to reestablish the lane that I think they felt in like vibe form was there, but they're trying to really establish one where Scott's Scott's team, I think has figured out his lane and they're leaning into it. And so I think that that is the sort of uh, tussle that's going on right now between spot two and three on our ranking list is which one is creating the better lane with Donald Trump doing what Donald Trump does and being indicted whatever many times and however many more kind of thing going on right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that, that brings us to... Number one. Number at, one. As you all know. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Uh, Donald Trump is, uh, at this point, by far the most likely Republican nominee uh, in spite of, or some people would argue... Uh, because of because of or or at least not mitigated uh, because of the indictments um, but yeah he's he's in a really strong position you know it, it, if so where we are the weaknesses of one you know like jail time <laughs> um, <laughs> um, number two um, he's polling under 50 in Iowa mm-hmm. and so you know, Again, I'm going to say this until the cows come home. Uh, I'm comfortable, it, or I should say, if I was, if I was a Republican who did not want Trump to be the nominee, I'd be re- pretty comfortable with this many candidates in the race now. If there are this many candidates in the race on the ballot in Iowa, uh, I'm not happy. If there are anywhere near this many candidates on the ballot in South Carolina. Then, like I've, then I failed. Then, then like, um, not just the candidates have failed. Although clearly, 
the candidates have failed, they need to make mature decisions about what their chances are and not hold on for a miracle. Uh, but the Republican, the uh, never Trump or, or anti-Trump forces have had uh, four years to prepare for this moment. Some some would say even even more. Like they've had they've had uh, eight years to learn the lessons from 2016. And uh, like we're gonna see over the next over the next uh, six to you know nine months here um, whether they're able to a what they learned and whether they're able to implement those lessons. But Melissa, any final words on, on Trump? Yeah, I think it's just I I don't this is just a new idea that's percolating in my head. So I don't know if I have it fully formed yet, but. Right now, with how the campaign is going with these indictments and with the first couple, we saw his numbers go up. Obviously, we need to see some new polling about what people think this this latest indictment has done. And are his supporters more staunch than ever? Has this indictment caused a few more people to go over to him because they don't like that they feel like it's politically motivated, whatever? Um, is for the GOP... Have we hit, is, was there ever a rock bottom? And if there was, have we sort of hit rock bottom for how far campaigns have to go to feel like they're matching up with Trump, with Trump sort of being like the pinnacle of how far rhetoric could go, how far like your policy, you know, the policy ideas he does bring to the table could go, his conduct, the language he uses. I've been wondering this for the past couple of weeks, if, if that is actually the rock bottom and some of these teams like DeSantis and Scott and Haley Pence are trying to figure out how to actually exist, you know, right above it, right outside it, um, that they don't actually need to go lower or but beyond sort of what Trump is doing, be, you know, into more like really radical positions on policy or on like approaches, whatever. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why DeSantis's team is struggling because I think that part of their strategy was we're going to do that and they're discovering like it's kind of already rock bottom so where do we actually go from here yeah yep I'm I'm uh looking forward to may not be the right term but I'm I'm well I'll just say I'm looking forward to the the information that we're going to get from from the Republican from the Republican debate that's mm -hmm. now in yep uh in just about two weeks, and so uh, two and a half weeks, and so uh, so there are our first rankings. Will uh, so we that that sets the benchmark, and then every month we'll update the rankings, and so we'll let you know who who sort of picked up uh, slots, who maybe fell down the ranking, but that is that is the bench setting. Uh, ranking for the Republican presidential contest. I'll just note someone we didn't mention because they're not in the race yet is Glenn Youngkin. Mm -hmm. Glenn Youngkin uh, jumps in at some point. I'll just say he's not going to start at nine. I think Glenn Youngkin, <laughs> I think Glenn Youngkin is someone to look for. But uh, all right, that is one ranking. Let's close out this episode with another ranking that I know all of you have been looking forward to, uh, and that is our pasta ranking. 
All right, Melissa, this is very important. It is the first of the monthly Where We Are Pasta Shape Rankings. Melissa, talk the people through how this will work. All right, I chose nine to match up with the nine that we have on the GOP side. Now, don't... I. I didn't see Michael's list, so don't like directly draw lines between number nine here and number nine in, 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 <laughs> in our in our GOP rankings. Because so, there are slightly more pasta shapes than there are Republican candidates. There yeah. are more than slightly. <laughs> um, okay, so number nine, bow tie. Because honestly, people hate the bow tie. I, I, just because it's nine doesn't mean it's it's bad. This I, is over like I don't know hundred other po- pasta shapes. Come on. Yeah. I I like the bow tie because uh, of the different uh, texture as you bite through. You know, yes. the middle is a little more al dente. No matter really, no matter how much you cook it, than you know, than the ends of the bow tie. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that the part where it comes together in the middle, like little bits of sauce will get stuck in the little crevices right there. Yeah. Can I say something yeah. controversial? What? Which is, I think bow ties are in the top five of pastas to make with butter and cheese. Agreed. And some sage. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Number eight. Um, we'll have to explain probably what some of these are just because I'm using like the real names. But Campanelle. Something's called Giggly or Jiggly or something. It's two different names. But Campanelle, basically think about the cornucopia shaped pasta where it's Ugh. it's kind of like wrapped in a little almost like remember bugles if you're a millennial listening to this it's like bugles <laughs> but with like sort of um yeah. very fun little edges they're very pretty and i like them i like pasta in this type of shape because then a ton of sauce and bits will go in the center of that pasta plus they're really pretty they are pretty yeah mm-hmm. uh, i yeah i'm not sure the Campanelle would make would make my top nine list, but this is your t- top top nine list that I'm merely commenting on, and so I had to start somewhere. I I support it. Okay. I support it. Number seven is Peachy, oh, which yes. a lot of you might not have heard of Peachy before. If we have any Italian listeners, this one's for you, especially if you're in Tuscany. Uh, Peachy is from like the Cortona area. Um, you know, under the Tuscan sun, that movie was shot in Cortona. It's an idyllic place. Peachy is like a thick spaghetti, but it's not a bucatini with, you know, like air in the middle. Think of bucatini thickness without that hole or air in the middle. Um, it is really good with a certain kind of garlic called aglione. Um, and that is also part of like the traditional dish of like when you have peachy in Tuscany, it's usually with this type of garlic. I ranked this here because a thick spaghetti is where I'm at. And um, I was thinking back to last year when we were in Tuscany and we had peachy with aglione. Yes. And I do think peachy holds up with um, uh, spice yes. and heat Yeah, really so well. another traditional dish would be like with a lot of pepperoncino or ch- red ch- chili flakes um, with olive oil, this aglione, this type of garlic. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite type of, types of pasta dishes. Yeah, really Peachy's good. Peachy's fantastic. Number six... Michael, you're going to love this one. You might even rank it higher because you love these. Agnolotti. Yeah, 100% has to be higher. I love Agnolotti. 
Well, you'll probably like my reasons for the okay, other. Okay, okay. But Agnolotti are, okay, if you go to a lot of American restaurants that are selling, it, um, giving you Italian food, they'll make the Agnolotti huge, like a ravioli. And no. we disagree with that. Agnolotti, which is from Piemonte or Piedmont, are tiny, tiny pockets of delight. Pouches of Little joy. Little pouches of joy. They're, so Agnolotti del Plan oh. is usually like the dish where the Agnolotti is filled with some kind of like pork mixture. So it's like it's like the leftover roasted meat yes. of the day. Uh, and you go to uh, you go to Piemonte and it will be on the menu of every trattoria that -hmm. you pass. Oh. They're just so little. They're little baby pockets. Delicious. And so you could you can make them with like a butter sage. You could uh, you how we use them at home is we we'll put them in broth like you would tortellini and brodo, and I mm-hmm. love that as well. Yep. Yep. Number five, ditalini. I love is, this. this. I love this choice. Family. I love this choice because we've been making a lot of ditalini with the egg, which is a type of pastina pasta type of pasta you make when you're sick. Um, and so we make that, we've been making that for the girls for the, cause Saoirse has been in a summer school. So she's brought home a different cold every month. Ditalini are the pop rocks of pasta. Yes. They just feel so great in the mouth. Uh, yep. They're yeah. tiny. They have like little ridges. So like they're actually textured for being so little. They don't you get can't, mushy You can't easily. really chew them cause they're, no. they're again, they're like popping all over the place. Yeah. No, I love Ditalini. Yeah. Multiple deeps. Um, and then number four, this pasta has a few different names, but um, we were introduced to it as being called Vesuvio pasta. So the Campania region, um, Mount Vesuvius, um, it's a type of spiral pasta that has this end that sticks out. It's a great pasta for catching sauce and bits. Again, a lot of my rankings are about how much can the pasta shape catch the sauce. And Vesuvio... <laughs> Is one of them. We always have Vesuvio pasta whenever we make um, salsa genovese or um, pork genovese sauce, which is pork shoulder simmering in onions. Um, and you put this Vesuvio pasta with it, and it's my favorite meal that Michael makes for me. So I haven't made it in a long time. No, we need the to second have it. it gets colder, mm-hmm. I'll make it. Yeah, buying some pork shoulder. Number three. Okay, this is when I really started to think of not just me, but you as well. Um, number three is tortellini. Michael last month made tortellini for the first time and they were incredible. They Your were first so good. Try, they were so good. I was so proud. Tortellini is from the Emilia Romagna region, specifically Bologna, our favorite place. Well, my favorite place on the planet. Tortellini, one of the best, most comforting things on the planet. You can stuff it with all kinds of stuff. You put it in a brodo or like a chicken stock and it's just the greatest meal. Yes. So tortellini is number three. Now number two, I put this here and you're going to know exactly why. So tagliatelle, which is also from the Emilia Romagna region, Bologna. Um, we recently had our anniversary dinner in New York City at Lartuzzi, which is in the West Village. And Michael, you had the best tagliatelle that I've ever had in an American restaurant. Yes, it was superb. Out of this world, best pasta dish I've had in... Uh, at least a year, uh, one of the best pasta dishes I've ever had in the states for sure. Um, it it was it was fantastic. 
So shout, yeah. shout out to Lartuzzi. Yeah, I mean, because I will tell moly. you, whenever you go to a restaurant and they serve fresh pasta in the United States, most likely they're going to have tagliatella on the menu because it's one of the easiest fresh pastas to make, especially in bulk for you know a restaurant setting. And I'm going to tell you that probably around 98% of the time the tagliatella is falling apart when you're trying to pick it up with a fork because they made it so way too true. thin. So and true. they cooked it for probably about 30 seconds too long. And this one actually had a chew to it and it did not fall apart when you picked it up with a fork. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Number one, number one, and I'm going to, I'm hard pressed to seeing this one being knocked off <laughs> by another shape <laughs> until we get through the 2024 campaign. Um, it's Mafalde or Mafaldine. Yeah. You fall in love, but this is like relatively recent. Like, like it isn't that long standing, but this is like your new flame. Uh, and it's, it's burning hot. Mafalde is a long <laughs> pasta. And think of, you know how lasagna has kind of like the uh, wavy ridges, the wavy edges? Think of long, thin pasta, like a tagliatella, but with those wavy ridges. So the texture is so much fun. It catches so much sauce because of it. More than like a spaghetti, more than like a linguine, more than a peachy, like more than a tagliatella. Um... So it catches a ton of sauce, and the texture is so much fun. I love the way it looks as well when it's kind of curled up in a dish when you plate it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm obsessed with Mafalde or Mafaldine right now. We just bought a pound of it when we were in New York a couple of weekends ago because it's not readily sold in most stores. You have to go to a specialty Italian store, or you have to order it on like Amazon or something. Yeah. So there we have it. Michael, do you disagree, agree? I mean, it's hard to disagree with you on this, dear. Um, uh, I, I do think uh, next month I want to introduce some different pasta shapes into the list. All right. And I do think, you know, there's a seasonality to this. So because we're in summer, because we're in summer, I do think I might have leaned a little more uh, pesto heavy. What, what's the pasta shape in... Genoa trophy. Yeah, trophy. So I could have seen trophy on this list. I also I love the Pacheri. The um you know oh, like the the, the wide, really and, wide and a little bit shorter rigatoni. Yes, I love Pacheri. I almost put that on the list, Pacheri. Yeah, yeah. But um I think trophy I have not had it cooked well. That is that it gets it's, really soft at the edges, yeah. at the ends, I'm sorry. And so trophy I'm rarely ever impressed with it, even though pesto is like one of the best things ever. Shout out to Liguria. Yeah. All right. Hey, that's a full episode. We covered a lot of territory. Uh, let us know what you think about either of the rankings, but especially, hey, if we inspire you to check out a new pasta shape, send us a photo. Let us know what you thought. Uh, it would uh, really make our day. Would love it. We love it. It's our love language. Italy, yep. Italian uh, things. Yep, 100%. All right. Well, we'll be back with you uh, next week. But until then, you've been listening to Where We Are. Bye.